Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast today. Uh, today we're continuing in Luke, Luke, Luke chapter 14, and we're doing 1 through 14. The lectionary is a little bit different than that, but um, I read it and I thought, oh, why did they do that? And Alan concurred that indeed um, they should have probably put the whole thing together. It really goes together. So uh, let's head in. Yeah, thanks, Christy. And once again, all the material in our lesson for today is unique to Luke's gospel, and you may be noticing a pattern here. Much of the journey to Jerusalem contains material unique to Luke's gospel. Um, As we have observed before, the primary theme is discipleship, and this passage makes some significant contributions to what that looks like. At the same time, um, I'm not sure if I've shared this with you before, but I've often spoke of this section of Luke's gospel as a kind of sermon on the way to Jerusalem because much of the content of what Matthew presents in the Sermon on the Mount is only found in this section of Luke, so I find that ironic as well. But perhaps more importantly, I think Luke presents a much more in-depth treatment of what faithful discipleship in the kingdom of God looks Mm -hmm. like in this journey narrative. Yeah. So the gospel reading begins with Luke 14.1. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. Mm-hmm. You know, at first glance, we might think it seems strange that Jesus would have been invited to does seem strange, house right? of a leader mm-hmm. of the Pharisees, right? I mean, of course, Jesus was a pilgrim on the way to Jerusalem to observe the Passover, and he was known as a teacher, so he very likely taught in the synagogue that day, wherever mm-hmm. they were. So, so those things might, you know, help make sense out of the fact that this person would invite Jesus mm-hmm. for a meal. But I think the real reason seems to have been that they were watching him closely, mm-hmm. which echoes Luke's statement in connection with the healing of the man with the withered hand way back in Luke chapter right. 6, that the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him to see whether he would cure on the Sabbath so that they might find grounds to bring an accusation against him. I, I, you know, I think any, any audience hearing the gospel, which is the way the gospel would have been presented, would, would remember that I think that so was the too. Case. I think so too. We're, we're going to see that the, uh, the reformers actually really question this whole, mm-hmm. and, and they have some different ideas about it. But I, I think when you're looking at the, I think we have to look at the whole. The well, and here. modern scholars still try to deal with those questions, you know, mm-hmm. how did Jesus come to be at this? Yeah, meal? yeah. But basically all of this more than suggests, I mean, it really kind of brings out that there was a situation of hostility and even conflict here. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, and then of course, in the lectionary we jump from that first kind of introductory thing all the way to this little parable but um i think we need to talk about this yep, we this do and because i think once again the revised common lectionary leaves out a part of the lesson that's crucial to understanding the whole text and really um if we were going to do justice to this whole thing we would take luke 14 1 through 24 mm-hmm. actually because the the following parable in in verses 15 through 24 also i mean it's said in the same meal it's mm-hmm. set at the same episode, and it addresses the same theme. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, now, so the story of the man with an edema, which was perhaps due to a heart or kidney problem, he that's, had a problem with the swelling I think of his that's limbs. Called, a, called dropsy in the 
Um, traditional in, in traditional yeah. translations, yeah. yeah, in traditional translations, a man with dropsy, but basically this was a, a basically a, a where the, a situation where the body retained too many fluids due to a heart or kidney problem, and but but this story of the healing of the man with an edema is part and parcel of what follows, and this particular condition rendered the man unclean in Jewish eyes. And therefore, he would have certainly mm-hmm. been marginalized. And so, again, the question comes up, how did he come to how be How there? Because he probably wouldn't meal. have been invited, would he? I well, mean, when you're I mean, it was about- a gathering of elite Pharisees and Torah experts, right? And mm-hmm. so, how did he come to be there? Uh, you know, we might ask, was he? were they using him to test Jesus? I mean, that seems... Probable to me, uh, it seems unlikely that he just somehow showed up and was able to walk into the meal. You know, my brain goes all you know, and I'm sure that it's it's not it's it's ambiguous for a reason. But one thinks was this a, a person that was actually of the elite at one point? Maybe. That, and I mean, maybe. disease I doesn't know. disease right. doesn't just pick on the poor, right? right? Maybe there's this, no respect for a person. Maybe there's even a hope he, Jesus will heal him, even if it's a, mm-hmm. you know, I, I this is really know. an interesting. It's a good. Yeah. It's, a, it's all very ambiguous. Yeah. But Jesus took the opportunity to establish his role once again as a teacher, and we saw this before, right, in the, in the mm-hmm. healing of the woman who was bent over, um, by asking them if it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath, and when they were silent, Jesus proceeded to heal the man. Mm-hmm. What is significant for the following text that the common lectionary includes is that this particular malady was considered to be symbolic of greed. Mm-hmm. Here you have a man mm-hmm. suffering from a buildup of too many fluids in his body, but he's insatiably thirsty. Mm-hmm. And so this also points to the appropriateness of Jesus asking a question about which of them would not rescue a child or an ox who was drowning, basically, on the Sabbath, right? Right, right. And so right. here That's this man was really drowning in his own fluids, and, and so Jesus, Jesus is, rescu- is rescuing him on the Sabbath. So the application to the situation is that the leader of the Pharisees was not only a religious, religious leader, he also belonged to the elite class in the social structure of the day. And what's more, a meal like this was a prime demonstration of social status. The only others in his only others in his elite circle would have been invited to dine with mm-hmm. him, right? And and so this was not just a coincidence. It's not just because well these are the people I know. It was because meals were a place where a man like this would not only demonstrate his commitment to re- to maintaining ritual purity as a religious leader, mm-hmm. but also as a social elite. It's a place where he would reinforce his status in the social structure or even seek to enhance mm-hmm. it by the people he invited to the meal. And so the meal itself then becomes a place where all kinds of greed that Jesus warned us about back in the parable Mm -hmm. of the rich fool, including especially seeking social status, were on display. I mean, you can almost picture the people sitting around the table eyeing one another and thinking, does he deserve to be Uh, in that place? I think I maybe deserve to be in a seated in a higher place, you know? (laughs) And so that kind of, that kind of situation, I mean, this meal was just ripe for that kind of situation of all kinds of greed, you know, ambition just personified. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, um, (laughs) uh, 
I think the following verses where Jesus talks about positions at the table loses much of its meaning without this context because that's what's going on here, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then this setting is implied by the introduction to the rest of the lesson. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable in Luke 14, 7. Now, again, the fact that Jesus had silenced them all in the earlier passage about healing the man with the edema, um, including Pharisees and Torah experts alike, by healing on the Sabbath, establishes his authority to teach them about the way the kingdom of God works and what it looks like to truly follow God's ways. And mm-hmm. we saw this earlier when we looked at the at the woman who had the spirit of weakness and, and was bent over. Right, right, right. Um, you know, the, the, the ruler of the synagogue tries to establish his authority as a teacher of the Torah, and Jesus just kind of, you know, asks a simple question and, and, and establishes that right, he has a greater right, authority. Right, right, right. Now, I think it's important for us to note that the fact that this is called a parable doesn't mean it follows the same genre as what we typically understand as a parable. Mm-hmm. Because here, really what Jesus is doing is, is speaking more like a proverb. We've already seen that Luke can use parable in this mm-hmm. way in Luke 4.23 when he quotes the proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. Right, right, right. right yeah. But it's called a parable in Luke's gospel. And uh, here, you know, we might even see this as just a piece of sage advice like you might read in the Proverbs. And actually, mm-hmm. there is, a, there is a, a passage in the Proverbs that sort of resonates with right. some of what Jesus mm-hmm. says here. Mm-hmm. So at first glance, when we look at Jesus' advice like this, it, it might look like it's intended to reinforce the whole system of using meals to demonstrate and even enhance one's social standing. He tells them not to take the seat of honor mm-hmm. or the first place, it's protoclesia, when they're invited to a wedding banquet, which I find it interesting that here... The banquet is a wedding banquet. And verses 15 through 24, which is paralleled in Matthew. In Matthew, it's a wedding banquet. In Luke, it's just a a, a meal. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that wedding banquet works its way in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that when they're invited to a wedding banquet, he tells them not to take the seat of honor or the first place, the protoclesia, when they're invited to a wedding banquet, which I think it's interesting that that Luke works that word wedding in here because in, in the parallel in Matthew 22, 1 through 14 to Luke 14, uh, 15 through 24 is a wedding banquet, but in Luke, it's just a meal. Mm-hmm. So when they're invited to the wedding banquet, they're not to take the place of honor so that they may avoid the embarrassment of being asked to move to the lowest right. place, literally ton eschaton tapon, the last place, right, right. the lowest place or the last place. Uh, and I think that's probably intentionally an echo in Luke's gospel of some are last who will be first mm-hmm. and some yeah. are first who will be last in Luke thirteen thirty. right? So that's mm-hmm. just the previous chapter. So instead, Jesus tells them to take the last place so that the host will ask them to move to a higher place and thus be honored. Mm-hmm. And so again, if we took this piece of advice at face value and removed it from the larger context of Luke's gospel, it could easily be read as simply reinforcing that whole system of honor, patronage, right, and right. reciprocity that undergirded the whole system of social status at meals. I mean, because Jesus is essentially giving them a sage piece of advice about how to enhance their honor by right, the way they right, conduct themselves right. at a meal. Now, it was, we'll see... the. Calvin sees this as being humorous. He, he, oh yeah, he, interesting. He takes this as being, being Jesus being a little bit cheeky, and I think I think that provides an an interesting look at it. Like, really, you're not going to get that petty, you know? I, yeah. I think that. So I thought that was 
We don't ever associate anything humorous with Calvin. So that Calvin actually <laughs> says this, I think, is interesting. Well, and you know, we don't ever associate anything humorous with Jesus either, That's because true. because we have the written page. We don't right, we don't right. we don't get to hear him yeah. and his, because and his tone of you, voice. If you think of it, we don't that, get to see the look on his face. If you think of this as in that that tone, then it becomes oh wow. How petty to think that I could be moved up to this place of you know it, it really it, it 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 kind of it kind of emphasizes how petty the whole whole thing is. Yeah, exactly. Well, and but interestingly, again, as I said, there is a there is a a, 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 a piece of advice in the proverbs that sounds a lot like this. Yeah. In proverbs twenty five six and seven, do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told come up here than to be put lower in the presence of a yeah. noble. Very similar to the Very advice similar. that Jesus mm-hmm. is giving here. Now, on the other hand, however, we've already seen the implication that one who tries to take the seat of honor or the first place would be asked to take the last place. We've already seen in that mm-hmm. the echo of the great reversal that's at the heart of Luke's gospel, beginning in Luke chapter 1 with Mary's Magnificat, right? Uh-huh. And so here Jesus states plainly that all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Mm-hmm. So this is more than about just giving sage advice to people who are seeking to enhance their honor at meals. This is a clear allusion to Mary's statement, I think, that he, God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly mm-hmm. in Luke one fifty two. I think it also resonates with Jesus' use of Isaiah 61 to announce the intention of his ministry, to bring good news to the poor and to proclaim release to the mm-hmm. captives in Luke 4.18. And I want to call attention to the use of apoluo in the statement in Luke 14.4. The way I'm translating mm-hmm. it, following Joel Green, his commentary on Luke is that so Jesus took him and healed him and released him. If you look at this in any English translation, it will say Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. Oh, and apoluo can mean to dismiss, but I think, you know, in light of the fact that we just had the healing of the woman with the spirit of weakness, so she was bent over, right. and and Luke mm-hmm. uses the term apoluo for the act of healing her. Jesus is releasing her from this spirit of weakness. I think, I think again, any audience hearing this gospel would not help but connect the release of the woman yes. with the spirit of weakness yes. with the release of this man who was suffering from this, you know, buildup of right, right. Oh, that's so much better. I, yeah. I really think that's a, an improvement on 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 what's in the um, yeah in fact in fact when i when i you know we we put the we put the scripture readings on the screen basically uh-huh. and we read them kind of responsively right. and when i when i send my secretary the, the 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 text for the powerpoint i'm going to amend the revised the new revised standard version yeah, yeah. and i feel i feel i don't feel any compunction about doing that because oh heavens no you know because i think no. this is a much better understanding i think so of the text. too i mean i think uh, you know an aside is i think that's always appropriate if, mm-hmm. if the, because we have looked here the choices are always made in these translations yep. and sometimes the choices or even the tradition is not necessarily the best um, i was surprised that every english bible translation i had access to um followed the same pattern even gene peterson in the message i was really surprised mm-hmm. about that yeah that's interesting but yeah. um as you just mentioned, this is what your opinion is, as well as this um, Joel Green. Joel Green. Yep, so, yep. yeah. So now, furthermore, you know, again, any audience hearing the Gospel of Luke would have understood this passage about, you know, um, 
All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In light of the dramatic reversal declared so clearly in Jesus' version of the Beatitudes in Luke, Luke 6, 20-26. So I think what we see here is that Luke continues this pattern we've already seen in the travel narrative, that he's weaving together themes already established in earlier parts of the gospel into this extended treatment of what faithful discipleship looks like. Mm-hmm. So... That now Jesus turns because yep. we're talking about the guests, and now he turns to the host. Yep. So he turns from the guests to the uh, at the banquet to the host, and it's clear. I think in this section, there, there's no question about Jesus' intention here. It's clear that Jesus yes. is, adv- is advocating an outlook, a set of values, and a community defined by the kingdom of God and the great reversal mm-hmm. it affects. And so Jesus tells the host not to confine the guests at his meal to those in his own social cir- circle who are able to receive. Right. Which was the whole point of, of the meals, practicing of of meals, meals in that setting, right? The whole point was, you know, you created a sense of honor and shame where, you know, they had a debt of honor to repay you in kind. That was right. the whole point. That's the whole point. So yeah. this is very, uh, in this context, this is a very, a very, very shift about kind of what has been. Well, it, it totally undercuts their whole way of life. The, their way of life. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. 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 So now there's no longer any question in this narrative whether that whole way of approaching hospitality is just another means of enhancing one's social standing, uh, you know, and, and whether that's appropriate in light of the way the kingdom of God is already transforming the world. You know, I think it's clear that that's not appropriate in light of the kingdom. So instead, Jesus tells him, a leader of the Pharisees. This isn't just any ordinary Pharisees. This is probably one of the elite Pharisees who is surrounded by elite Torah experts. He tells him, when you give a banquet, invite Mm -hmm. the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Mm -hmm. And he's to do this precisely because they cannot repay you. And and so, again, you know, the, the whole, I mean, this not only undercut their system of clean and unclean, Right? Right. But it also undercut this whole system of honor and shame and this whole system of right. patronage. Right, right, and, right. I mean, this, this was the basis upon which their religion was founded. It was the basis upon which their whole society right, was founded. Right. You know, you might as well have, have, have been advocating for a, a complete redistribution of wealth. Exactly. In, exactly. Which that would be the no. equivalent in our, in our day. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, this is very yeah. radical. Um, now, I want to point out, you know, it's kind of interesting that in Luke, uh, in Leviticus 21, uh, 17 through 23, where um, Moses is instructing the priests about how they're to conduct themselves at their meals, he says that the lame and the blind and the crippled would be excluded from the priestly meals in the presence of God because of their blemish, although they were allowed to eat the food. I think it's interesting that Jesus uses the poor, the crippled, yeah, the lame, that and the is blind, you know, as the ones that, that he says that they're to invite. Um, yeah. And yeah. he says they're to invite them precisely because they cannot repay you in mm-hmm. verse, in verse mm-hmm. 14. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is very, very interesting, too. And when you're going back to, uh, I, I'm thinking about the man with, with edema and thinking about he may not be poor obviously he'd be kind of crippled 
we, we, we don't know anything else about him. Well, it, you know, he, he may very well have had means, but he may very well have been marginalized and therefore, and long and therefore he may have been impoverished. Yeah, right. We don't well, really and obviously he fits in lame and, and edema can cause blindness too. I mean, who knows this guy? We just right. don't know, but well, it, it and, just and, and, me but his, his situation is clearly that he is one of the marginalized. He is right. not, he is, he would not have been on the A list of guests for this meal. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So again, here, I think we see Jesus' vision of God's mercy. And this is a theme I keep coming back to, but it's it's so foundational, this whole section of Luke's gospel. Jesus' vision of God's mercy. Now, the way in which the kingdom of God works is that true hospitality seeks no repayment because it's based on the generosity of God's mercy, mercy freely extended to mm-hmm, all. Mm-hmm. And so in this setting, then, instead of using meals to, and I'm quoting Joel Green here, secure their positions of dominance in their communities and insulate them from yeah, the poor, yeah. which you can see how that would happen. Right. Jesus insists on the practice of hospitality that collapses all the barriers, mm-hmm. the barriers between clean and unclean, rich and poor, insider and outsider, social elite and mm-hmm. social outcast. And once again, you know, this is we've already seen this before in Luke's gospel. Once again, what Jesus is advocating undercuts the whole system of reciprocity that, import, that supported the, the higher social system of patronage that was so endemic to the honor shame that defined one's status. Mm-hmm. And as, as we've said before, I mean, it reached from the poorest slave to all the way to Caesar right, in, right. The, in the Greco-Roman world. So that those who practice this kind of, of, of gener- hospitality that seeks no repayment will be blessed and will be repaid at the resurrection mm-hmm. of the righteous. I think, again, once again, we have to recognize this does not establish a quid pro, pro quo, that if you extend this hospitality to the poor, the lame, the blind, and the crippled, then you will be blessed. But rather, it affirms that, their beha- that the behavior... Uh, which pleases God is that which is in line with the values and purposes of God's kingdom. And Mm -hmm. so in this context, in Luke's gospel, the righteous are those who embrace and align their lives with the kingdom of God. That's the implication. Right, right, right. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, Yeah, that makes sense. So, So moving on. Yeah. So then really this whole passage works together. And in fact, as I said several times, Luke 14, 25, uh, Luke 14, 15 through 24 continues the episode. It's, it takes place at the same Sabbath meal in the same sitting, leader of the Pharisee's house on the same day, right? Mm-hmm. In Luke's gospel. And so it continues the episode by presenting the opposite situation of persons being invited to a banquet and refusing the mm-hmm. in, invitation. In the context of Luke's gospel, then, a meal with the religious leaders, as well as interaction with the religious leaders on the Sabbath, implies hostility on their part as they were seeking to bring grounds to bring an accusation against him, right, Mm -hmm. for some time. But we have already seen that this setting is also a place where Jesus establishes his authority, that a meal or or a healing on the Sabbath is a place where Jesus establishes authority to redefine their religious and social norms on the basis of his commission to carry out the ministry of a lease that is consistent with God's mercy and the purposes Mm -hmm. of the kingdom of God. So then... I think in this whole passage, Luke 14, 1 through 24, Jesus' ministry of release clearly overturns the conventional social and religious norms. But here, not only does Jesus heal and release a man who would have been seen as consumed with greed, Mm -hmm. in setting out the ways in which the kingdom of God dramatically differs from their understanding of Torah, 
he also extends an invitation, I think, Mm -hmm. to these Pharisees and Torah experts to embrace the kingdom of God and to align their lives uh, with the values and purposes that the ministry of Elise establishes. I think that's important. It is. He is teaching and extending that invitation to those who are the, if you will, his enemies. I I think that's really important that um, Jesus isn't saying uh, the kingdom of God is not for you. Mm -hmm. It's saying that you're invited too. Well, and you know, we don't really see that in Matthew and Mark. We have that one place in Mark where Jesus says to one scribe, I believe, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Right, that's right. But otherwise, there is no sense in, in Matthew and Mark that there is any openness to whether or not the even the Pharisees and the Torah experts, the scribes, could possibly mm-hmm. become, you know, disciples of the kingdom. Right. But in in Luke's gospel, that is left open, I think, intentionally, um, and um, you know, the, to me that they're that they're so invited to 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 align their lives with the kingdom is implied in Luke's version of the parable of the banquet, mm-hmm. or is in, in right. Matthew it's a wedding banquet. Um, although those in the parable refuse the invitation, clearly, right, right. the response of the Pharisees and the Torah experts who were hearing him tell this parable at this particular right. meal on this particular Sabbath day is left open, as right. we will see is the case in other parables in Luke's travel narrative. Right, right. So just very interesting, I think, how this reflects Luke. It does. Kind of unique well, and and that and that Jesus would be extending an invitation, even at this. I mean, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem exactly. for his death, right? Exactly. And he knows this; he's already predicted it, right? But he's still reaching out to these Pharisees and scribes and yep. offering them the invitation to right. align their lives with the kingdom. Yeah. That that is just that bowls me it over. It is. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Thanks. Well, we'll be back in uh, a minute and uh, have a look at uh, the reformers. Sounds good. Hi friends, we're back and we are going to take a look at some of the insights that Christy found from reformers and from the whole social setting of the Reformation. So uh, Christy, uh, take it away. Sure, and today I'm going to look at some of the reformers' responses to this passage and then I'm going to really talk about how the, this, this analysis really reflects um, their, their society. You know, we've talked a lot about um, coming to Scripture and that we are, we are impacted by our, our, our social, political surroundings. We, even though we want to be very, very, very um, objective about it, we are shaped and we come to that. And, and I think we really see... Yeah, I mean, R- Rudolf Bultmann coined the phrase back in the early part of the 20th century, there is no such thing as presuppositionless exegesis. Exactly. And and I think, um, one, what, first of all, we see the Reformers come to this in all passages within their context. But then I also think what we see in here is is how this reflects some of the things that start to change in that early modern world. So we'll kind of take a look, and I think it's helpful I, I think it's helpful for us because we are also impacted with our own unique set of situations. And I think as people try to go back to some kind of pure reformed tradition, they get forget that those folks are shaped in an early modern period. It's a very different setting. Yeah. And so and so it's it's important for us to just just have these 
this awareness. So anyway, um, this pericope for them um, actually begins with a, with Jesus coming to the Pharisee's house, and they too go all the way through, but I didn't spend time past that. But um, interesting for them, they're divided on whether or not the Pharisee is acting in good faith. <laughs> that is interesting, yeah. <laughs> is this type a type of test for Jesus, or is it an earnest invitation? Mm. Those who argue that it is a test claim that the Pharisee called Jesus to dinner in order to try and trick him. You know, and in Matthew and Luke, that uh, Matthew and Mark, I mean, that would make sense. But given what we said about Luke, it, it's kind of, it, we're not sure. We're not sure. Yeah. So, and they didn't all agree with, with that. However, those who claim it was an, just an invitation say that it shows Jesus was here to save all kinds of people, including the Pharisees. So right. they, they, they think maybe it was an honest invitation. Um, but all reformers agree that the story of the man with the, dropsy or edema is important for the whole of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I, the only reason I like the word dropsy for us is because I think it, I think it, it clouds or it shapes our opinion about the man. When Mm -hmm. we think of, I don't know what that is and what's wrong with it. You know, it kind of, yeah, because today we know what edema is. We know how to fix it, but dropsy, that's a, that's a weird disease. Well, there's know? some there's some forms you know that we can fix. There's some forms that you I mean you right. just treat it with medication right. and it's incurable. That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, so um, and they question like we do is how was that man with with the dropsy even at the home of the Pharisee, mm-hmm. um, and was it evident? It, what is evident is that the situation of the man with dropsy was problematic for the Pharisees as they were challenged between um, whether they should whether he should be healed on the Sabbath. Um, so this was against the law or whether it was, they should be loving their neighbor. So they seem to see that there was some conflict within the, 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 the law. Let's see. Should you, should you carry out a clear commandment of scripture on the Sabbath? <laughs> Love yeah. your neighbor as yourself, right? Right, right. So <laughs> I think that's the equivalent of the kind of logic that Jesus tries to use with them. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is too. Yeah. Um, so then I, then I move on to the parable of the feast. And um, Calvin begins his analysis, Calvin in particular, his analysis knowing that this um, started at the Pharisee's house and thus believes that the story is a direct commentary mm. on the actions taken by the Pharisees and the scribes who had created an hierarchical framework for themselves. I think in that day, in the 16th century, that was very insightful for Calvin. I, I, I do too. I do too. Um, and he claims that Christ is actually using humor, which I mentioned before in this, <laughs> by pointing out that you are too ambitious in placing yourself ahead of someone else, um, and then you would be embarrassed when you are unseated and put at the lower position. So he's like, look, Jesus is like making fun of these guys, you mm-hmm. know. Um, while this had a specific encounter, Calvin claims that the parable is designed to instruct everyone who presents themselves as superior to others as, as really being... Uh, an incorrect way to mm-hmm. approach the world. Well, and you know, you think about it, humor can be a, a very powerful way to instruct people. It can be. I know. And it's fun to think of it as being presented that way, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, Calvin kind of adds this interesting observation. And I, I want to point this out only because I'm going to, I'm going to follow that up a little bit later on. But he says that this is not so much about public modest, modesty, quote, for those who are the most proud often excel in this as- aspect and carry themselves in public, as many note, with great modesty. 
You know, all I can say is Calvin was an astute observer of humanity. Exactly. <laughs> and I do think we see this today, but people don't realize this is very much a part of Renaissance culture. Mm-hmm. And one of the big things in Renaissance culture was to, you know, if you were of status was, and particularly in, particularly in the cities, but, uh, and, and to be somebody that, that had these gentlemanly qual- qualities. And we can, we can see this. There's several books, but probably the most famous is Baldessare's Castiglione's Art of the Courtier, which has all the instructions for appropriate modesty, modesty and gentlemanliness. It's interesting. So they not only, they, it was not only something that they, they, they practiced, they practiced it on purpose and they were instructed on how to practice Abs- this false absolutely. modesty. <laughs> and I, I think I've told you about Renee Frick's um, uh, Dressing Renaissance Florence, mm-hmm. but in there she talks about how the the coats worn by the the um, the wealthy the the olig- oligarchs and the, were were looked just like the peasants, mm. but when you opened them up, oh. they were filled with the flamboyant wow. um, uh, uh, furs and everything else. So, so all the, the all the uh, ornateness was on the inside yeah, of the coat. Yeah, yeah I think I, I'm liking it to the idea of a gilded age, mm-hmm. except like reverse. So right. you didn't see the fancy, but the fancy's inside. So mm-hmm. everybody. Mm-hmm. really knows who's who at the end of the day when right. the coats come off. Right. But walking down the street, you're showing this this appropriate modesty mm. that's reflecting wow. that you are a Republican man. But 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 is really false modesty. It's really false modesty. <laughs> yeah. So this this is a really so that's why I went back to this this quote with Calvin. Those of the most proud often excel in modesty and carry themselves in public carefully. You yeah. know, and so what a what an interesting state. So we'll come back to that. Also, um, responding to this, I have a sermon by Luther, <laughs> and he comes at this very realistically. I, I would say I, I might I might say realistically is putting it mildly. <laughs> well, I mean he's 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 kind of like he's kind of like yeah realistically in his worldview, but it's, it's trying to come at the eyes of these people who are looking down at others, saying, mm-hmm. "How can a person quote put himself be at the level as good for nothing people?" Well, and that would have been the challenge, I right. think, you know, for these social elite Jewish leaders. Exactly. Yeah. And so he's he's saying this to folks and saying this to folks that that have an opinion about who who's who mm-hmm. and who's not. But then and he, he knows it. And he knows it. But then yeah. he goes on, and I didn't include it here, but uh, he goes on in the sermon to say, look, um, don't get so full of yourselves. Right. You know, right. I, I have to, to, to handle this. You need to go back and understand that you're just as simple as child of God is everyone else. And yeah. so we, and he uses some curse words, which I didn't quote, but I mean, it's very raw, but it's also very poignant of, you know, don't be so full of yourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's very Luther and, um, he is challenging, he is challenging people with this sermon claiming that we should not presume good things about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then, then he goes on to suggest that we should be patient and kind with one another and be mindful of pride and suggest that the best way to avoid self-aggrandizing is to put yourself in someone else's shoes and interacting with folks and befriending others. I think that's a great phrase for it, self-aggrandizing. I <laughs> yeah. mean, I think that's really <laughs> hits the nail on the head with what was going on at this meal, you know, right, uh, that right. Jesus attended. Well, and, you know, and I didn't, one thing we know about Luther is Luther invited everybody to his house mm-hmm. and he always had a household full full mm-hmm. of all kinds of characters from all kinds of backgrounds. So he did practice yep. what he preached here. Yep. So 
Now I want to step away a little bit from the passage itself, but just to have you think about, um, think about the whole Reformation uh, period. And I think it's an interesting to look at how the Reformation figures tried to shape their behavior. Um, and even in those areas that accepted reform according to this principle, sure. I would argue that the efforts of the reformers um, to um, change impacted the piety of an entire area. And this, I would say, coincided with the rise of modernity. In other words, you've got, you know, historians look at different reasons why things happen. And, and you would have, you know, your kind of Marxist historian would say, well, what was, you know, it's economics that's going to change, that's going to push history forward. Or you might have somebody that would say, well, like somebody who studies, um, um, studies the environment might say, well, it's really the environment and changes that allowed allotment for- of resources. Yeah. Exactly. And person, a historian of ideas like I am might say, oh, it's the ideas that push mm-hmm. it forward. Well, it's all to, I think really ultimately is all these things put together, which is what makes it so fascinating. And I would say that, um, the reformers and, and their new kind of take on how the reformation impacts society is one of those things that does help po- push forward what we know as modernity. Um, so I, as I said, I put this all together and as it's moving towards modernism. So this goes together with the other things that are define modernism, such as moneyed economies, the growth of, and the growth of trade and the rise of cities. Mm, yeah. Okay. So the reformers were acutely aware of the growth of cities and, and this is, um, something that we forget about, but, but, we're moving into a time where it's mostly agrarian and now we're moving to a time when it becomes more urban. Mm -hmm. So we have many, many, many people who were formerly working as peasants and there still was kind of um, a respect for the peasant class in the medieval period. Now they're moving to city and becoming the urban poor in Mm. many, many cases. Um, And so around in these cities are, is is a very, the really, um, that divide the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And of course we see this again in with the rise of industrialization in the, in the late 18th and 19th, early 19th centuries. Um, And so Luther and Calvin are all recognizing this is going on and, and, and they're starting to respond and, and see, Oh my gosh, but we really have, um, we really have a society that doesn't look Christian at all. So they're, they're seeing this, and they're seeing that the Roman Catholic Church is allowing that mm. to continue. And, yeah. of course, then you think of things like Luther and um, um, the um, um, buying and selling of indulgences, and that's just kind of, again, pulling apart that the rich can do what they want, um, the poor can do what they want. And, and we've talked about this idea of looking like you're, you're a, a um a player and understand this kind of uh, of stuff, but every but 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 the real world's not run that way. It's run mm-hmm. by this this whole series of patronages. Yeah. So, um, historians became really interested in, in in how the Reformation impacted the cities. Really big in the 1980s. Some of the big big names in Reformation studies: Thomas Brady, Bern Moeller, Stephen Osmond, Heiko Overman, all got involved with this in this kind of unique space. And they noted how cities um, that were, remember how there's no division of church and state. So they're in charge of the religious establishment and they try to ameliorate the needs of the poor. Mm -hmm. And um, 
again, this rise of the free cities in particular, you get two kinds of, of living in the whole in the Holy Roman Empire. You have cities that are run by magistrates in a countryside that is ruled by wealthy landowners. So the, the countryside's behind. It kind of is still running in kind of a medieval framework, and yet... Feudal system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you still... It's... You still start to see the wealthy landowners pushing them around even more. They are taking away rights of peasants. So it, mm. it, it is impacted there. But they have a different kind of environment. No one questions wealth and power of the landowner in a country, and he always has the power to exert himself over his subjects. Um, and we saw the ability of the lady to respond to scripture led to massive peasant revol- resu- res- excuse me, revolts in the 16th century. And we always talk about the great peasant revolt of 1525, but they continued to occur. Um, we, saw, we see them in France. We see them in England, actually even earlier. Um, the great, uh, the great uprising, the Fronde, which also, which also included a direct attack on the nobility, was another chance for uh, peasants to revolt. But cities had a different organization, uh, where the magistrates were embedded in the religious struggle of the Reformation, and good leadership necessarily incorporated Christian mm, ideals. That's interesting. So I think it is important to note that the reality of the countryside is different from the cities and that the pressure from the religious establishment did make inroads into not only helping the poor, but dictating the behavior of those with means. So to quite, quote Heiko Obermann, quote, the South German Reformation expanded Luther's limited purpose to include a reordering of the community seeking to realize the horizontal implications of the gospel within the framework of the bonum communi. And that's good society. Um, so this is really interesting. They had their yeah. own version of the great society. They, yeah, they did. <laughs> but it's interesting to think about that the the Protestant reformers recognize that they're not just preaching gospel, but they're sh- they they are really shaping, um, they're really shaping the community. They're really shaping what the Christian world is going to look like, um, and that's that's an overwhelming task. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, this coincides with also making sure everyone has access to the scriptures, right? So they can read it for that's that's part of this this creating a society where 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 the poor are being reached, mm-hmm. if you will, where the, where the marginalized are being reached. The good news is preached to the poor. I do want to say it does not produce a kind of society where everyone is truly equal. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of, of what they're doing and what their status is. There's like a, a kind of a practicality. So what I see is a needed balance between the actions of a community and the internal change that comes with humility. And this is, of course, what Calvin was responding to above. But I think it is the real heart of the issue that impacted not only reformers themselves, but also today. Um, To the end of valuing all people, the the Protestant cities, quote, curtailed clerical privilege, um, redefined service in the city not by status, but by ability and character. Hmm. In other words, you could get a job if you could prove that you had the the skills to do it. And three, provided for the poor. They actually had provisions for the poor. In other words, there is a very real call to take steps that reduce the division between the haves and the have-nots. And then there is a piece that seeks to embrace servant leadership. We also see this we see this in particular in a piece by Martin Bootser entitled, titled, One Should Not Live for Oneself Alone. Um, and as we know, these are really core ideas 
today. Mm -hmm. um, I might conclude with the biggest difference today is that these ideas are upheld as Christian ideals, but we are in a time of division in church and state. And because of that, these ideals are becoming less and less central to the idea of good governance. Sure. As fewer and fewer legislators embrace these ideals, we are going to continue to see an erosion of a state that is for the people. Yeah. So, my thoughts. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, everybody. We're back, and we wanted to talk a little bit about some of the kinds of practical things. Well, what happens if we have a meal that everyone is welcome to and there's no status um, involved with, you know, no invitation list per se, but that everybody is invited and what that looks like? And um, I think um, the Hickman Church here where we're at provides many opportunities for this, um, and yet it might be interesting to see who comes. So, Alan, go ahead. and. Yeah, I was thinking about that in re reflection on, on this passage. Um, we have a lot of meals. Uh, a lot of our meals are, are after worship on Sunday morning. And, you know, it, so it, it kind of makes some sense that people who haven't shown up for church aren't going to show up for a meal like that. They may not even know it's happening. Um, but I mean, it's kind of. I was kind of reflecting on you know Jesus' take on this this sort of open-handed, free uh, hospitality with no expectations in return, in in light of you know the 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 old adage that uh, Sunday morning worship is the most segregated time in in our country, and um, you know especially from the standpoint of of those who are marginalized, you know would. How would we? How would we embrace them? Would we embrace them? How would we get them to even come? Mm -hmm. uh, we do have uh, a community meal on Wednesday evenings, and I think it's fairly well known. I don't think it's it's not a it's not a secret. I think it's fairly well known that we have a community meal on Wednesday evenings throughout the school year. Um, and you know, if someone who was truly um, perhaps unemployed or struggling. Uh, impoverished or anything like that wanted to come, we would certainly feed them. Um, but there's almost like this implicit sort of social stratification mm -hmm. in place because, you know, most of the people there are working people and they're, you know, they, they have their own cars and they, you know, they, they have their own homes and they, they, they have a certain kind of, you know, they're middle class. They're basically mm -hmm. middle class or upper middle class. And, you know, folks who are truly in the poor, among the poor, you know, they're, they're, whether we in, impose a stigma on them or not, they, they seem to feel a stigma about associating with yep. people outside their class. Uh, we, have a, we have a community Thanksgiving meal, and we typically um, put something out publicly that all are welcome mm -hmm. to come to our Thanksgiving meal. And we do have we do have a lot of people come from the community, and some of them may or may or may not be as well off necessarily as the people in our in our congregation. And, and there's no there's no issue there. But again, I've never seen someone who I think was truly impoverished show up mm -hmm. for a meal like mm -hmm. that. And I I I'm, you know I wonder what what it takes to overcome that. And I was sharing with Christy. Uh, we have a Norris area food pantry here. Norris is the school district here. And we have a food pantry that's at a sister church, an ELCA church, about a mile down the road. And we support that food pantry. But we, we came upon the idea of putting a, one of these little pantries in our, at our, one of our entrances to our, our church. 
and stocking it with food uh, there. And what we found is we have to restock that thing on an almost daily basis. Mm-hmm. And especially during, during the pandemic, we've been doing that. So th- we know that there are people who are using it. In fact, one person put a, we've had a couple of notes that have been left. One was, you know, I've lost my job and I wouldn't eat if it hadn't been, I wouldn't be eating if it hadn't been for this pantry, you know, for, the, for this being here. And um, um, so, you know, we know that, that, impoverished people are using that but i just wonder you know to me the image of this um unrestricted hospitality that is generous open-handed uh open to all goes out of the way to invite those Mm -hmm. who may be marginalized in society you know how do we overcome the stigma they feel they might feel we we i don't know that we would impose a stigma some some might i don't know but i don't know that generally we would impose a mm-hmm. stigma on them but how do we overcome the stigma they feel i think yeah i mean i think it's i think it's really a deep sociological question and that's one of the things that we'll never solve I, there is something um to the especially folks that that maybe are are homeless and poor to the survival part of part of the mm-hmm. purpose of life is the survival of life which is why some of those folks really often don't even go to the pantry. I mean, it's kind of a last, or to the, I mean, to the, um, the, the meals, the soup kitchens, Mm -hmm. which are out there. Or the shelters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then a lot of times you get people who are temporarily down on their luck, which you Mm -hmm. see some of, and yet I think there's a big embarrassment. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me, we were serving at, I was with a group, group of youth at one of the area soup kitchens. And she recognized a girl from school, mm-hmm. and she and the gal and the and the gal who was serving, who was from my congregation, was so. I mean, she tried to say hi, but the other girl was so horrified she mm-hmm. didn't even come back in the building, because oh my gosh, my family's here. Instead of seeing this as a chance to um, share together, it yeah. became this sense of oh, offer support. Me. Uh, yeah, uh, exactly. So what a. Well, I mean, when you have somebody who's been middle class and they've lost their job, and, and as the case is mm-hmm. with many people in the middle class, people are, are, are maybe one paycheck away from being homeless themselves or unhoused themselves and, and needing that kind of assistance. You know, mm-hmm. when you've been middle class and all of a sudden you find yourself in that position, yeah. you know, I, I, can, I can imagine that it really does affect their sense of self-esteem. Yeah, I think, I think it does. I think it does. So what an interesting, I do think it's important and and. Um, that, however, though, I think one of the challenges with the soup kitchen is when all the people serving then don't eat themselves. I mm-hmm. think you go grab a plate and you go sit down with people mm-hmm. and you converse with them. And that mm-hmm. that makes people feel valued. Yeah. Um, and But obviously, like the Thanksgiving meal, the Wednesday night, that's not the case at all. I just think there's something about um, coming in the building. I mean, yeah. I don't know. You have a you have a, a summer thing where you're serving hot dogs to the community. How does that go? It's, it's mostly middle-class people Same who thing. come, you know, we, we just had our community festival and, and we, we say we have a bake sale and we have, we serve, we have a parade and we serve, we serve burgers, brats and dogs, mm-hmm. you know, and, and again, it's, you know, it's, um, you know, it's mostly middle-class people from the mm-hmm, community who come. Mm-hmm. I've never seen anybody who I would say seem to be, you know, truly impoverished uh, in the line. I wonder, another question I have, and I wonder about this, and I think this is kind of part of society today in particular, right? We have a, when, when we put out like an all-church announcement, 
a lot of people don't come, but when we ask them personally, mm. they're more apt to come. Yeah. And I wonder if there needs to be some work with creating relationships where you can sure. invite people personally to come. Sure. Well, and you know, f- in, in when I was when I was still in the Baptist world, I, when I left the seminary, I pastored um, First Baptist Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan, which was a great, just really progressive American Baptist congregation, and um, there was a rotating um, meal every night of the week, uh, oh, yeah. Monday through Friday, in the community churches, and we were on Tuesday night. And so we had a we had a Vespers program where we led worship for some of the anybody who wanted to join. Nobody had to come to Vespers in order to get fed, but if somebody wanted to come, they could. Mm-hmm. And then our people and other some other volunteers, I think, from the community would come as well. We had a rotating schedule of, of volunteers for mm-hmm. each each um, um, meal, and so I think our people served the meal actually at our church maybe once every six weeks. And you know we we did we did try to interact with the folks. I I don't remember. It's been twenty years ago, and I don't remember if we actually got a plate and sat down and ate ate with them. But we did try to interact with the folks as much as possible. And you know there was no charge. People could come back could come back as much as they wanted. But this was sort of a. It was like th- this was their group. This was a group of impoverished, uh, unhoused people in the community who went from church to church, you know, every night of the week for, for an evening meal. And, um, and, and so I, I don't think that they felt that kind of same, that same kind of stigma in there. Now, in, in one of the churches I pastored in, in Houston, we did this, it was a small church, but they did this amazing um, program where they gathered, they collected enough food to give um, boxes of food the idea was to feed a family of four for a week at christmas they did 72 of those boxes of food this in this church had a membership mm. of about 35 <laughs> or wow. 40 wow. and and you know there was one person i remember delivering a, a box to her she lived in a house in a middle class uh, setting and she was moved to tears by all the food right. we brought in right. and you could tell that this was a family that Somehow there was something going on. They needed this food, mm-hmm. you know, because you drove up to the house and you thought, well, I wonder why we're delivering here. But, you know, that just betrays our humanity, right? Right, right, But, but right. at the same, but, but when we delivered the food, she was moved to tears and it was obvious she needed it. Right, and so, right. you know, we, we, we didn't do a whole lot of judging. There was, there was one person... And, and again, that was a sign-up thing, and we put it out in the community, and anybody could sign up for it. Mm. And, um, Interesting. But, but we were delivering to their home. We weren't necessarily asking right. them to come to the church to come space. to us. Right, yeah. right. And, and yeah, I, it's an interesting... I, I, I was, as we've been talking, I mean, and I'm, this is probably not the right example, but I know that, like, in New York City, there's been this experiment with, like... A dinner in white, dinner en blanc, um, where people all dress in white. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind these parties like this is that everybody comes um, with, and they're limited as to what they can say about themselves. That everyone's wearing the same color, so every, there's no judgment mm-hmm. based on on anything because everyone's really kind of wearing the same thing, and so it provides people this kind of freedom. Uh-huh. Um, and 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 like you only know first names mm-hmm. and. Um, but just to kind of be and interact where there's this kind of equality, there's no, no strings attached to it. And uh, it sounds like an interesting social experiment. Mm-hmm. And I, I do wonder, um, 
Yeah, I do wonder to what extent that our social experiment of the free church dinner has somehow not caught up with the times. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if, if we need to be more innovative right. and find a way that that meets the needs today where sure. people are not feeling marginalized. I, I don't I don't when, I remember when I was a kid this was terrible in, in high school. Um, they would have two lines of kids at the for lunch. And there was the one line, it was the a la carte line. Uh, so everyone who was paying with cash right. didn't have to could pick bits and pieces of the meal. And it was mu- actually much longer. And then there was the full lunch line. And anyone who was taking a full meal, including everyone on free and reduced lunch, right. was in the other line. Right. Stigma automatically attached right. because right. you could see exactly. We had something like there. that in our in our school. There was a, there was like a there was the cafeteria food, and then there was like a, a snack bar food, and and most of us didn't care for the cafeteria food. So right. those of us who had the money to buy our own lunch would Went go to, to the uh, snack exactly. bar. Yeah. They've changed that now because you have. I think all the lines are all the cart lines, and the kids mm-hmm. just can use a certain amount on their mm-hmm. carts. Right, but it. It has changed some, and I know, as I recall when I was purchasing meals, you could either buy individual meals as a parent or you could buy the snack money. So it mm. kind of depended on what mom did. And obviously, if you're on some kind of free reduced lunch, you're just getting the, the right. I think you just get the meals. But there's not quite the stigma that we had. Right. But again, it right. was it was a, we need to catch up. You know, they had to catch up to the times to meet mm-hmm. the needs. And I think maybe the church, we need to think that again. How do right. we meet our community's need to care for the poor? Right. Maybe we go to a place that's not the church to maybe serve we, a meal like the Thanksgiving meal. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Maybe we step out of our spaces mm-hmm. that they have associated with who knows what mm-hmm. and, and do it somewhere else. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, let's face it. A lot of people have associated the church with judgment and condemnation, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and some of these people have made life choices that, that maybe they feel ashamed of right. and and the last thing they want to do is go to a church where they're going to be right. humiliated going to be judged so yeah. th- or or there's something expected at the end and and maybe mm-hmm. so maybe that's that's you know that's an idea so yeah. but but I think this is a great challenge uh, and I think our reformers actually said look you know we we're changing hearts here um and uh we have to we have to our hearts then and how we then respond in what we do um, I think eventually, eventually can take off, but yeah. I think we just have to be innovative how that works. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.